Story six of Kafer Kangaroo Klondike Tales of the Gold Fields by Thaddeus William Henry Levitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story six The Green Door A Night in Melbourne A winter night in Melbourne. It had been raining all day, the wind from the south blew chill and raw. As I wandered down Great Burke Street, I saw, drawn up in a line, some fifty men standing in the gutter. Each man had his eyes fastened on a green baize door directly in front of them, as if their last hope depended upon its opening. The men were of all sorts and conditions, the sundowner from the back blocks, the costermonger without a barrow, the new chum who had deposited with his gracious uncle, the professional free lunch rounder, and the decayed gentleman. One wretched creature in particular drew my attention. At one time, some time, heaven knows how long distant, he had been a gentleman. The fragments of a Prince Albert coat were buttoned tightly up to his very chin. I should have said pinned, for every button was gone. His hands, blue with the cold, were clean, and there was something in his very attitude which said, I am not to this manner born. I beckoned to him, and when he came up I said, Come with me, my friend. He followed at my side, but spoke not a word. Entering a private room in the coffee-house, I called for a glass of hot beef tea. While he was drinking the tea greedily, but shivering between each gulp, I ordered a hot dinner. He ate the dinner with the voracity of a starving man. Then I handed him a cigar. I closely watched him and saw, written on his face, an unsatisfied longing. "'What is it?' I said." opium came in a hoarse tremolo from his throat i have it i said drawing a half-ounce bottle of laudanum from my pocket i had purchased it for a prospective trip quick six glasses he whispered the waiter brought the glasses my strange companion placed them in a line and then said divide it into six parts pointing to the laudanum i complied with his request he seized the first glass, drained it, and closed his eyes. Taking up the herald, I waited. After the lapse of five minutes, I turned to my guest. His eyes were wide open, almost staring, while the ghost of a smile played around his mobile mouth. "'What is your name?' I asked. "'John Lilburn,' he answered slowly, as if he were struggling to recall his own name. "'Where from?' I queried. "'No reply.' only a puzzled expression on his face. Then he croaked out, Time for number two. Immediately he swallowed the contents of the second glass, and again closed his eyes. This time the interval was not so long. A tinge of color stole into his thin cheeks, his hands ceased to tremble, the creature began to look like a man. How long have I been here? he inquired, as if surprised at his surroundings and the complacent mood in which he found himself. Then his eyes fell upon the glasses, and he nodded his head, as much as to say, I see it all now. You came with me from in front of the green door, I replied. What does the green door signify? Supper, he answered, supper for all who stand in the line at eight o'clock and are sober a good Samaritan on Burke Street, a Christian in a new quarter, and in a strange guise. 
that depends upon your standpoint of view murmured my companion the man conducts side by side a drinking place and the restaurant in the restaurant every night for half an hour he cares for some of the finished product turned out by his other establishment has he turned you out as finished i never drink he said a trace of hauteur coming into his manner worse said i pointing to the glasses my last remaining friend was his reply and he raised the third glass to his lips and drank it off with the dignity of a gentleman of the old school he brushed back his tangled hair with a nervous energy his very presence grew upon me then he unpinned and threw back his coat exposing his bare chest for he wore no shirt arose and paced the room with a decided step which betokened a man used to command the homeless beggar had vanished and in his stead stood god's noblest work i beg your pardon he said but whom have i the honour of meeting i gave him my name and he bowed with courtly grace we are brothers he said all men are brothers but unfortunately our pride prevents us from acknowledging the truth then we drifted into conversation and i learned that he belonged to an excellent family in the north of ireland he had obtained his degree at trinity college dublin taken orders and proceeded to south australia where the bishop gave him a large parish in the pastoral country suddenly the relator became reticent and relapsed into silence i divined the cause and pointed to the glasses he hesitated and then he drank off another but with a disgust shown when one is compelled to take medicine the effect of this potion was unexpected the parson for such i must call him burst into song at first sentimental and then comic they were certainly not acquired at a divinity school he fairly rollicked in the patter songs so famous years ago in the london music halls when he drew a comparison between a monkey and a dude in which the monkey had the best of it he was irresistible and i laughed till the tears ran down my cheeks the reckless abandon the rollicking gaiety the quip and the quirk all were perfect i forgot who he was and what he was as the last patter song died on his lips he turned ashy pale and began to tremble violently i handed him another glass but he dashed it from my hand and poured out upon me such curses as i had never heard before they froze my blood and gave me a sight of the very soul of the man reeking with blasphemy and hatred and a savage malevolence so vindictive that a fiend from the bottomless pit would have turned and fled as i darted to the door he seized me and with the strength of a madman hurled me into a chair his horrible laugh ringing out with sardonic glee piercing the ears and running into a mocking refrain turning to the table he swallowed all the laudanum which remained two minutes later he was another man his mouth was that of a child with the pathetic pucker always seen before an infant bursts into tears i forgot his violence his obscenity everything in the new character before me i felt that the curtain was up for the last act when it fell there would be darkness the light would fail and the green door come back i have never told the story he exclaimed but the time has come when it must be told 
His voice was so low that I was compelled to bend forward and listen as the words fell from his lips. Then he dashed into the recital, startling in its intensity. In my parish was one great squatter who made his home upon the estate, the other squatters living in Adelaide or Melbourne. John Bond held by the good old English practice and lived upon his estate. If the land did so much for him, he said, then he was bound to stand by the land. At my first visit I fell in love with John Bond's daughter, Helen. Up to that moment I had been bound up in the work of the church. Men called me an enthusiast, a dreamer. I believed and acted upon my belief. I know that I had a mission, tidings to impart, hope and comfort to offer. I was a priest, consecrated to the work, not an interpreter. I believed that a priest should not marry. Twenty-four hours spent at John Bond's house made me a new man. I looked back on the past as a dream. I saw myself a phantom, a church instrument, but for the first time I felt myself a man. I had been a slave. I became a living fire. I had dreamed of happiness for mankind. Mankind were swallowed up in Helen Bond. She constituted the universe, my universe. I pouted out my passion and found my love returned. What more could priest or man demand? Half the summer I lived in a dream, an ecstasy, a delirium. I had not saved a sovereign, for my creed was, give all to the poor. That is, it had been my creed before I met Helen. She took absolute possession of my heart, my emotions. My first pang came when my would-be bride told me that the dream of her life had been Melbourne. When we married, there we must live. I implored the Bishop of Adelaide to secure for me a parish in the great metropolis, and received in reply to my letter a curt refusal, with an admonition relative to neglected duties. Helen was adamant the condition was Melbourne. She suggested that I should appeal to her father for assistance, but my pride revolted. At this juncture the news came describing the new gold fields of Western Australia. Helen whispered in my ear, it was but a hint. I caught at it and drove to Adelaide and tendered my resignation. The bishop refused to accept it and told me that I was mad and upbraided me for deserting a sacred cause for mammon. Stung by his reproaches, I confessed my secret. I painted Helen as I saw her, her beauty, grace, sweetness, but nothing moved the ecclesiastic. I flung all to the winds and sailed for Perth on the next steamer. The terrible march to Coolgardie did not abate my ardor. At the mines I was one of the few successful. In four months I wrung out three thousand pounds, but at a fearful cost. The toil, the damp earth, the coarse food, and the delirium, which drove me on by day and harassed me by night, sapped the very springs of my life, ate up my imagination, devoured my sympathies, obliterated my faith, and planted in their stead a greed for gold behind which I saw the smiling face of Helen. The mail brought me no tidings, though I sent letter after letter down to the coast. Sleep forsook me, I resorted to opiates. 
My luck deserted me, and this increased my fury. I was soon known as the Mad Miner. I laughed at the taunts. Was not a priceless reward before me? Helen ever beckoning me on. I saw her face in every nugget, her form in the little smoke clouds, as they rolled away from the candle in my miner's cap, her smile in the water running over the ripple. I could endure the torment no longer. With my treasure I started for the coast. I watched it by day and slept beside it at night. A thousand times I woke with a horrible start, believing that it was gone. How much opium I used on that journey I shall never know. I landed at Larges Bay and hurried into Adelaide. The green belt which girts the city, the blue sky above, the camellias bursting into bloom, made no appeal to me. I had burned up my capacity for enjoyment. I was no longer a man but a husk, a mere cinder, a bit of scoria sucked up by a mighty tempest and driven forward. At the bank of Australia I drew up, and as I did so, Helen came tripping down the steps and smiling as only Helen could smile. I rushed forward and caught her in my arms. The next instant I was hurled, half senseless, into the gutter. The bishop, my bishop, stood towering over me in a rage. "'How dare you, sir! How dare you affront my wife in such a manner, you hare-brained!' he exclaimed. He raised his hand to strike me, but Helen interposed. "'Your grace, my dear, forgive him. We both know that he is not always responsible for his actions.' Then they entered a carriage and drove away. When I turned I saw my box of gold. How I cursed it! Once to-night I saw it again. Pardon me if I shocked you. The box lies in the bank vaults at Adelaide. It has been there for five years.' I shall never touch it again, never, never. How have I lived? As the birds live, on the crumbs. I have begged. The opium fiend has me. You know it, sir. But here, take this. And he thrust into my hand a sealed paper. He lived for a week after. I went out daily to see him at the Alfred Hospital, St. Kilda Road. The Lilburn wing of the new Adelaide Hospital was built with the treasure, and the Lord Bishop delivered a most eloquent address upon the occasion of the laying of the cornerstone, but that was many years before the present bishop arrived in the colony. End of Story 6